it's a phrase that's not used much anymore, but when I was a boy, I did everything I could to avoid this phrase. In fact, I did many stupid things when I was young so that I would not be called a scaredy cat. I did not want to be known and labeled as a scaredy cat. I hate snakes. I'm scared of, I'm scared to death of snakes because I'm not a psycho. All right, if you have if you have a pet snake, there is something wrong with you. I've never understood how that goes in the pet store when you're deciding on a pet and a pet owner or the, the store owner says, Here, here's a puppy that is looking at you with adoring eyes and will love you for the rest of your life. Or here's a cold-blooded reptile that's banging its head against the side of its cage wanting to kill you. Which one would you like? I'll take the snake. There is something wrong with somebody who has a pet snake. But one time I touched a snake because my cousin said that if I didn't, I would be a scaredy cat. And I'm not a scaredy cat. And uh, so I avoided that phrase. I want to preach today for a few minutes on scaredy cat Christians. We're at the bridge between Thanksgiving season and the Christmas season. And Thanksgiving we talk and, and uh, think much about gratitude, as we should. We want to be thankful. At Christmas we talk much about and think about uh, peace on earth. And uh, that's some those two things that we uh, kind of go back to back and we're now that Sunday in between Thanksgiving and uh, December 1st where it starts Christmas. By the way, you are a lot. Our church will officially put the blessing on you putting decorations up on Thursday or after Thursday, okay? Uh, we, we have been making clear we're not for decorations before uh, December, amen? That's about Thanksgiving. Some of you have broken the rules, and we'll have to talk later. Uh, I want to look at two verses today that will encompass both gratitude and peace. Let's look at these verses. John chapter 14 Verse number 26. But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you in all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you. Not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Scaredy cat Christians. Father, I pray you'd help us in the next few minutes here to see something in this passage we can put to work in our own lives to help better us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 27 is a common verse for funerals. Peace I leave unto you, my peace I give unto you. Not as the world giveth I give unto you, but let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. The reason that this verse is such a great verse is because the composition of the entire subject of peace is found within it. If you look at it, we're told three things in that verse. Jesus says, uh, He is the giver of peace. This give peace I give unto you. He also says that there are wrong types of peace, and His peace is altogether different than any other peace that you can have. Not as the world giveth, give I unto you. And then also the third thing we see is that His peace is opposite or the antidote of fear. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. So we see three things in that verse. Christ gives peace. It's different than any other kind of peace you can get. And this peace is the antithesis to fear. Now, I want to make a point. I want to talk about sorrow for a moment. You'll not see any place in the Bible where it tells you that it's wrong to be sad. Uh, there's, in fact, a lot of times in the Bible, 
It uh, tells you to be joyful, but in no place does it tell you that it is wrong to be sad. Actually, the Bible talks about how we ought to rejoice in our sorrows or despite our sorrows. Christians will be sad because we live in a very sad and painful world. Now, people do all kinds of things to deal with sadness in their life. Maybe we try to harden our hearts against any type of sadness in the world, or we try to avoid the people or the places that take us to a place of sadness in our life. Uh, Many people do mind exercises, basically trying to reboot the brain with happy thoughts. There's a term for this is actually cognitive reappraisal. Others still uh, try to boost their serotonin. You know how you do that? Eat carbs. Amen? That's why we call it comfort food. Amen? How many of you agree with me there's sometimes when you're sad, a big old plate of steaming hot french fries will do the trick, amen? It'll help us when we uh, are in those bad places. People deal with sorrow and sadness in different ways. But when you become a Christian, all that sadness goes away, right? No, it does not go away. In fact, sometimes when we become a Christian, we are more drawn to the sorrows of the world than ever before because now we have a tender heart. It's no longer a hard heart, a stony heart. We start to be involved with people and invest in others. We care about others and love our neighbor. And this is all a recipe for getting hurt. And it's a recipe for being sad. So the Bible allows for the fact that Christians will be sad. Jesus was a man of sorrows. The Bible says he was acquainted with grief. Yet despite this fact, we are supposed to rejoice in our sorrows. The Bible says in Philippians 4, 4, Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. One way to deal with our sorrows is to rejoice in the midst of them. But we're not talking about sorrow today, we're talking about fear. But the reason I brought that up is that the Bible never says we're to rejoice in our fears. We're to rejoice in our sorrow, but not in our fears. The Bible does not say that Jesus Christ was a man of fears. He was a man of sorrows, but he was not a man of fear. The peace that Jesus brings can be enjoyed. Don't miss this now. This is the the, the comparison. The peace that Jesus brings can be enjoyed in the midst of sorrow. Have you ever done that before? You're tremendously sorrowful, but you still have the joy of Christ. Because the joy and sorrow, they're not antithetical. Uh, The word comes from the word antithesis. Oh my goodness, antithesis. Thank you so much. Uh, There's more than just the opposite of something. What that means is directly opposed or contrasted. Think oil and water. They're the antithesis of one another. Uh, For example, rich and poor... That are, they're opposite of one another, but they're not really ant- antithetical because you can be kind of rich, you can be kind of poor. One man's poor is another man's rich, if you know what I mean. By the way, according to the world, uh, if you look worldwide today, we're all tremendously wealthy if you compare us to the rest of the world. Are better or worse? Uh, they're opposite, but not really, an- really antith- antithetical because there's degrees to it again. Someone's worse is someone's better. But light and dark are opposites, and they are also antithetical. They cannot coexist with one another. If you have light, it chases out darkness. If you have darkness, it chases out light. You can't have part light, part darkness mixed together. 
So the peace of God can be enjoyed in the midst of sorrow because it's not antithetical to sorrow, but the peace of Jesus mentioned here in verse 27 is absolutely antithetical to fear. Here is my peace. Therefore, you cannot be afraid. There's the test. Don't fall for the statement, if a person is a good Christian, they're always happy. No, no, not so. That isn't always the case. Sometimes there is sadness. Again, Jesus uh, would have failed this uh, constantly in his life because he was a man of sorrows. But what the test is, that if you are a Christian, your fears ought to be diminishing. If you are growing in Christ, like we have challenged all year, if you are growing in your Christian life, then you have less fear now than you did in the past because you're growing in Christ. Uh, if we have a perfect relationship with our Heavenly Father, we will have no fear. Well, we don't have a perfect relationship with our Father, do we? I wish we did, but none of us really do. But if you're growing, then you're less afraid than you were last year. That's the test. The scripture says that God's peace eliminates fear. Not necessarily sorrow, but it eliminates fear. People have all kinds of fears. How, how, how would you like to just be able to get rid of your fears in your life? We have all kinds of different types of fears. From arachnophobia, which is a fear of spiders, to electrophobia, which is the fear of chickens. Never really understood that. From phasmophobia, which is the fear of ghosts, to dentophobia, which is the fear of dentists. That's me right there. I have a fear of dentists. Pray for me. I'm going on Friday. And uh, I will appreciate your prayers and... and uh, uh, that'll be a help. There's even poraphobia, fear of the color purple. Don't get that either. Uh, Turophobia, the fear of cheese. Certainly don't have that fear, amen? If you do, donate it. I'll take care of that problem. There's all kinds of fears we have. And so I want to dive into these verses. What I want to do is in verse 27, I'd like to work backwards in the three things that we discussed. Again, uh, Jesus gave this order. I give you peace. I give you peace like no one else does. And that peace is the antithesis of fear. I want to work backwards through that verse. We start with fear is the antithesis of peace. First of all, uh, I'm sorry, yeah, fear is the antithesis of peace. First of all, where does fear come from? Where does it come from? Why are we afraid? Well, if we really tie it down to its origin, fear comes from sin. Let's go all the way back to the first sin in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve uh, ate of the forbidden fruit. And then after they did that and they uh, realized their situation and then they heard God's voice. And the Bible says in Genesis 3.10, notice the number one result. And he said, this is Adam speaking, I heard thy voice in the garden and I was afraid. Fear as a result of sin. The first result of sin, the very first was fear. So what is sin? The dictionary defines sin as an immoral act considered to be a transgression against divine law. For the purpose of our message today, I would like to just define sin as us saying to God, I don't need you. If, if you really de define sin down to its core, that's what it's doing. We're telling God, I don't need you. I'll go my own way. I'll do my own thing. I'll make my own choices. I do not need you. And that's essentially what sin is saying to God. Consider Adam and Eve. They were the perfect couple in the perfect place, a place, paradise, always 65 degrees. Amen, Brother Wes? Uh, visually stunning. Every sound was a delight. He likes it hotter. 
I think heaven will be 65 degrees. That's why he has to take a sweater when he goes to heaven. Uh, but anyway, uh, there was no cold. There was no tears. There was no pains. There was no mosquitoes. Praise the Lord. Nothing unpleasant in this place. Garden of Eden. Everything was perfect. The Bible tells us that every day God came and walked with them in the cool of the garden. And when God came, they ran up to him in eagerness to spend time with them. I remember when my children were little and I would come home from work at the end of the day and I'd open the door and it was a chorus of daddies as they rushed me and I got my hugs and kisses as they came in. They turned into teenagers. That doesn't happen anymore. Uh, why? Sin. Amen? Um, before we get upset, let's just go on. What was the language of Adam and Eve's heart? The language was not fear. They knew no fear. Their language, the language of their heart is if the greatest one in the universe loves me, and if he is my friend, then what could I be afraid of? That was where they were at before sin. But the time came when they decided they knew better than God. And so they made a choice on their own. God says, don't eat of this tree. And they said back to him, but we want to eat of this tree. You're nothing but a patriarchal system infringing on our individual rights. We identify as someone who wants to eat from that tree. Something along those lines, they said to God. The minute they decided they knew better than God, they decided they didn't need Him. The moment you know better is the moment that you say to God, I don't need you. And when you say, I don't need you, your relationship is broken. Instantly, when they ate of the fruit, they realized that they were naked and they were ashamed of themselves. Uh, they felt vulnerable. They felt exposed. They were defenseless. And then God showed up and Adam hid himself because I heard thy voice and I was afraid. Sin brings fear. Now, it's so important to draw a line from where they were at to where we are today. The Bible gives us a keen analysis of our condition because the serpent uh, the lie of the serpent in the garden was essentially move away from God and you'll move away from fear. His lie to Eve was this. See, listen, you're not free. You need to be yourself. Express yourself. You're under his thumb. You're afraid of him. You shall not die. Uh, you shall not surely die. For God doth know that uh, the day you eat thereof, your eyes shall be opened and ye shall be as God's. This was the lie that the devil gave then. And that's the lie that Adam and Eve listened to. Move away from God and you'll be move away from fear. But the Bible shows us that when we move away from God, we actually discover fear. That's what happened to Adam and Eve. That's what will happen to you, you too. Fear works opposite of what the world tells you. Fear gets greater the further you move away from God. The world tells you, do you know why you're afraid? Because you're bound by the Bible. You believe in God. You're submitting to a wrathful God. A religion is the opiate of the people and it keeps you enslaved. You have to be free. And so the more you move away from God, the more you move away from the Bible, the less fear you have in your life. The Bible tells us exactly the opposite. And if we open our eyes, we'll realize that's a bunch of garbage. The reason we have a spirit of fear is because we move away from God and we're moving into fear. I read something fascinating this week, a, an article on the San Francisco earthquake in 1991. Some of you remember that when that happened. There was a psychologist trying to help people deal with the stress and trauma of this earthquake. And in an interview, this is the question he was asked, and I quote, 
It seems like our ancestors just didn't used to fall apart when it came to disasters. <clears throat> our ancestors used to bury half of their children before they reached maturity. They took troubles and tragedies in stride. Now, why is it when we have a tragedy, everyone has to run in and help everyone because they feel so traumatized? This is the answer that the psychologist gave. Listen carefully, and I quote him. Well, think of it this way. First of all, our ancestors believed they were small in a big universe that was controlled by God. They knew God. They prayed to God. And they didn't have this same sense of powerlessness. For example, for our ancestors, this life was a small part of their reality. You lived here for a while, then you died and went to heaven. But for us, this life is all we have. Not only that, we're the only ones running this world. When something like this comes along, we feel so powerless and helpless, it engenders tremendous trauma. End quote. Do you get what he's saying? The fear gets greater the further you move away from God. The psychologist was right. The more you move away from God, the more you feel insufficient. The more you move away from God, the more powerless and helpless you feel. You're putting yourself in a place that is too big for you. Here's that, and that's our, really our problem as, a, as humankind. That's what, from Adam on, we are too small for the position which we have taken on. Uh, we are built to hold God's hand as we navigate a life fraught with problems. When you let go of God's hand and decide, I don't need you, you're taking on something far too big for yourself. A few times I've had the pleasure of uh, Jerry Ellingson taking me up in his plane. And uh, I'm uh, the last time that he did so, I, I didn't even, haven't even told you this, brother, but I had a terrifying dream the night before we went up. Now, I don't dream much. Uh, I don't uh, usually remember them, but you, we've all had those once in a while where something seems so real. I mean, you, are, you, you almost are affected for several hours after you wake up because it just seems so real. Well, the night before we were going to go up and take a flight, I dreamed that we had just gotten up into the heavens, the sun was shining, and Brother Jerry passed out. <laughs> yeah. And so he passed out, and now it's on me to land this plane. I don't have the training, I don't have the ability, and I, I have to land this thing. Obviously, I knew I could not do so, and I was petrified and terrified. Because what are you going to do? I can't do what has to be done to save my own life at this time. And you could, it was the understatement that when I, it was one of those times when you wake up, oh, you know, because you realize and then you think about it and realize, oh, it was just a dream. Uh, because there was tremendous fear in my heart at the time, even when I woke up. Why? Because I don't know the first thing about landing a plane. Can I tell you what the antidote to that fear was? The knowing hands of my friends on the throttle. Not my hands. I can't do it. But the further I would have moved away from him, the more the fear would have been there. You understand what I'm saying? But knowing his knowing hands were on the throttle helped me to deal with my fear. So again, what is sin? Sin is taking on yourself a position in this universe that is too big for you. When you take the wheel of your life, you are, on, you are taking on a vehicle that is outside your ability to land not going to be able to do it. 
When you, uh, when you, what is the solution then to that fear? The solution is God's peace. Putting your trust in someone who has the ability to land the plane, so to speak. Put your trust in Him. Number two, the counterfeits of peace. Now the antidote to fear is peace, but Jesus says there are also some counterfeits to peace. Peace I leave with you, He said, not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Counterfeit money is simply counterfeit money because it is a lacking authority. Counterfeit money does not have behind it the authority of the federal government backing what it says it's worth. A good counterfeiter can dupe some people, and often does, but when the fake is brought to authorities, it will be found false and destroyed. Likewise, a false peace lacks real peace because it does not have behind it the authority of Jesus Christ. Now, the world can offer many counterfeits, but in the final analysis, there's no real peace in it. Have we all not put our faith into things that don't really bring us peace? We hope it will, but it does not. How can you tell the true peace of Christ then from counterfeit peace? Well, a couple of different things I'd like to just mention. Number one is open eyes versus closed eyes. What do I mean by that? Well, the world's peace comes from closing your eyes to the truth. Christian peace comes from opening your eyes to the truth. More than once I've witnessed to someone and talked to them about eternity and they'll some, say something back to me like, well, I just try not to think about it. What kind of sense does that make? But you know what that is? An attempt at some peace. I don't want to think about where I could end up if I don't know how to avoid hell and to gain heaven. And, and I think about there must be life uh, after death and, and uh, I worry about the way I've lived and the way I've been. That can be a source of stress. And so I'll try not to think about it. And that should give me some peace. That's one way the world brings it. <coughs> Robert Heinlein said there is no conclusive evidence of life after death. But there is no evidence of any sort against it. Soon enough you'll know why, so why fret about it? Well, that's again a ridiculous statement. Because if eternity is real, and it is, if there is a heaven and there is a hell, and there is, then doesn't it make sense that we might go about trying to figure out how to avoid the bad place and go to the good one? Amen. Uh, not thinking about it is absurd <clears throat> for us to do that. A, the signs of a brain tumor or headaches that gradually become more frequent and more severe, unexplained nausea, vision problems, loss of sensation in your limbs, difficulty with balance. Now, let's pretend you have all of those signs and you say, I don't want to go to the doctor. I'm afraid of what I might find out. So I'll just try to ignore it. That's ridiculous. It doesn't help us or give us any real peace to just not think about the problems. What you ought to do, friend, is to consider. Consider your eternal future. If you've never done so before in your life, do so right now. Don't think that the, the, the answer to it is to not think about it. The answer to it is to think about it and do something about it because you have a Jesus who loves you enough to have died for you and provided a way to get to heaven when you die. How foolish then it is to have this secular thinking. If you want peace, don't think too hard. It won't give you any real peace. Christ's peace is different. Christian peace arises from a greater awareness of your true condition. 
When you come to Jesus Christ, you're accepted. You're loved. You're an heir to the throne. As a Christian, you know that God is holy and loving and wise. If you're a Christian, you know what your future is. So the more that a Christian talks about it and thinks on these things, the more peace he has. That's why Paul in Philippians 4, chapter 8, uh, chapter 4, verse 8 says, think on these things. That's what we ought to do. The world says, you want peace? Don't think too hard. The Christian says you want peace, think harder, but think on the right things. That'll help you. If Christ is your Savior, you'll learn all these great Bible truths in the Word. And the greater your awareness, the greater your peace. I was raised in a religion, a religion that taught that my eternity in heaven depended on my good works. And boy, if you want to talk about a scary future, you make it depend on you being good. Because we're not that good, amen, if we're honest about ourselves. And so there was tremendous stress and worry about the fact of where we're going to end up until we got that blessed news from a a person that showed us in the Bible that it's not your works because it can't be. Because even your good works stinks in the nostrils of God compared to His holiness. You don't have enough good to offer Him. And so you know what He did? He made a way for you. It is not of works, but it is of His Mercy that He saved us. Oh, what a great truth. Doesn't that truth give you peace? It certainly does me. And it will you too if you can accept it in your life. The world's peace comes from closing your eyes. Christian's peace comes from opening them. The world's peace comes from don't think too much. The Christian's peace uh, is the more rational one. And so that's what we ought to go after. Secondly, Christian peace is constant. The world's peace is erratic. Jesus says, my peace I give unto you, not as the world giveth. So what is the world's peace? What what is that dependent on? Well, really, it all comes down to circumstances. The world's peace really is only according to your circumstances. You got a raise. You got a promotion. Your stocks are doing well. I know that's a pipe dream right now, but I'm just using it as an illustration, okay? Uh, Your problem is that your circumstances are constantly changing, especially as we get older and the things that we attach our peace to, they disappear. We realize that all things, even our loved ones, even our very life is subject to be gone soon. And so why do we try to attach our peace onto circumstances? I have, you've probably all seen uh, these... uh, if you've got kids or grandkids, when we play with bubbles. And uh, I like doing this, especially with kids when they're really little and still pretty dumb. Uh, and you blow these bubbles. And uh, especially if you do them out in the sunshine, if you do them outside, they turn into gleaming rainbows full of color. What do kids try to do? What do kids try to do? Have you ever done it with your grandkids or your kids? They try to reach out and grab it. Try to reach out, and I, I, uh, the, the confusing look when they finally get one. They finally get a hold of one, and they grab onto it, and, and it's nowhere. It's just disappeared. There's no sign of it anywhere. That's kind of the kind of peace the world offers. We grab onto it. Oh, hey, shiny, nice. That's going to bring me some joy. That's going to bring me some peace. And we grab onto it, and it's nothing. It's gone. It's ashes. It's dust. It doesn't last. The world's peace is counterfeit. One minute it's there and then it's not. 
On the other hand, though, Christian peace is based on something that can never change. Christian peace is based on something solid. Psalm 46 verse 1, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in time of trouble. Uh, Therefore will we not fear, though the earth be removed, and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea. Christ's peace is constant. It is consistent. It is not erratic. Everything that the world bases its peace on gets removed eventually. Your home, your career, your wealth, your family, your friends, your very life. But Christ's peace is constant. It is consistent. Uh, Christ's peace does not change when the body dies. Christ's peace will not change when the mountains are carried into the midst of the sea, the Bible says. Christ's peace will not change though the earth be removed. Christ's peace is like a river that does not run dry. Don't cheat yourself by accepting a bogus imitation of peace that the world offers. It'll pop into nothing as soon as you grab onto it. Finally, how do we get Christ's peace? Peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you. We've looked at the opposite of peace, or the antithesis of peace. We've seen the counterfeits of peace. But how do we get Christ's peace? The answer is seen in the context here. Jesus is talking to his disciples about dying. He's going to leave them. The next day, he's going to die. Now he says, peace I leave with you. Essentially what he's saying is, this is my last will and testament. Leaving you peace. Did you know, by the way, that the, the peace of Christ, uh, the, the, the things you leave somebody in the will, in a will, they can't be executed until you die. The, the will cannot be executed. Uh, they don't come to the recipients until you die. Understand that the peace of Christ is completely wrapped up in his death. Christian peace is based on the fact that Jesus died and fulfilled every requirement of your sin debt. Whew, that's good stuff, isn't it? You can't pay your sin debt. So he did it for you. Now, he has given you a clear deed, a clear title to adoption into the family of God. Now, how does that work in your life? Well, we don't have time to turn there right now, but Romans chapter 8 is a wonderful chapter for this. It has all kinds of promises and truths. In verse 1, it says, There is now no condemnation to them that fear, which are in Christ Jesus. We know that all things work together for good to them that love God. Verse 28. Verse 31 says, If God can be for, if God be for us, who can be against us? Verse 35, who then shall separate us from the love of Christ? Verse 37, nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors in him that loved us. What's Paul doing in these verses in Romans chapter 8? He is giving us a recipe for peace in our life. It's real. It's practical. It's all through Christ. As a child of God, we can look at our life now and say, hey, step back, heart, with all of your guilt and your anxiety. You'll never be my peace. Shut up, world, with all your opinion and shifting philosophy. You're not going to be my peace. You don't scare me, death. Do your worst. See what comes after. Our peace begins with the death of Christ. And until we see that He is not our only our moral standard, but He is our Savior, our dying Savior, will we see peace. Now, we look at all this and say, I, I believe all that, and it sounds good, but how does that peace grow? Because you might be here and saying, yeah, I'm, I'm doing some of these things, but I still have fears. I look at the future. I look at society, and I have all these fears within me. Well, that's why verse 26 is there, back in John 14. But the Comforter, 
which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send you in my name. He shall teach you all things. He shall bring all things to your remembrance, whom, whatsoever I have said unto you. The Holy Spirit's job is to remind you of the things that Jesus has said. That's what he's supposed to do. Now, the peace comes when you allow the Holy Spirit to take Jesus' words and drill them into your life. If you really want to deal with your fears, if you're serious about dealing with some of your fears today, why don't you spend some time in Romans chapter 8. Read it every day for a week. Read it every day for a month. Hey, memorize it. Get that thing into your uh, life and understand it because Jesus never, Jesus never says just pull yourself together. He doesn't do that. He transmits His peace that is realized through His great promises. And His great promises are realized when we allow the Holy Spirit to drill them into our hearts. Let's get just real practical for a second. I'm going to mention a fear and then a verse out of Romans chapter 8. Uh, there's uh, the fear. Fear, I am doomed. No one can forgive me. I can't even forgive myself. I'll never be clean. There is now no condemnation to them that love Jesus or which are in Christ Jesus, verse 1. Fear, I am overwhelmed. I can't handle this. I'm scared to death about what will happen next. Verse 28, we know that all things shall work together for them that love God, for good for them that love God. Fear, it is like I have to live life on my own. Why doesn't anyone stand with me or for me? Verse 31, if God is for us, who can be against us? Fear, there's no one that loves me. I live alone, I will die alone. Who then shall separate us from the love of Christ? Verse 35, the fear, I can't win against my addiction. I'm a loser. I can't overcome my demons. I'll always be a failure. Verse 37, Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him that loved us. Don't you see? His peace comes from His promises. His promises are when we apply them to our situation. Oh, what a blessing that'll be. We deal with our fears by working out the truth of what Jesus said. And Paul said in Romans chapter 8, If Jesus did all that for us, if he continues to strengthen me, then good grief, what am I afraid of if we've got him? Do you understand? If you lack this peace today, I challenge you to do something about it. Now, there's several reasons for your fear. Number one, you've decided you don't need God. That's, we're going to be very fearful if we get to that point. You don't need the Bible. You don't read it. You don't do what it says even if you do read it. The Spirit's fear-killing work in your life is not happening because the Spirit's job is to remind you of what Jesus said. And what Jesus said is in this book, which you're not reading if you've told God you don't need Him anymore. And so His commands and His promises are all a part of our continually dealing with the fears and lack of peace in our life. Number two, or if you, if you have fear, you have bought the lie of the world. If you are depending on the things of this world for peace, I promise you, you will have no peace. If you depend on a career, or finances, or your toys, or even a person, you will be devastated. Because the world cannot offer you peace. It never will. No lasting peace anyway. Number three, reason that you still have fear. Mentally, you're forgiven but deep down you haven't accepted it yet. You're still beating yourself up, still telling yourself how bad of a person you are. Do you know what that is saying to God when you do that? 
God, I don't need you. I don't need your mercy. I don't need your grace. God told Peter in Acts 10, 15, what God hath cleansed, call thou not common. And yet that's exactly what many people do with themselves. God has saved you, cleansed you, and yet you continue to beat yourself up. Can I remind you that verse? What God hath cleansed, don't you call unclean. Amen. We don't need to live life as a scaredy cat Christian. Let not your heart be troubled. Be not afraid. A Georgia far- I read this story this week. A Georgia farmer, ragged and barefoot, was standing on the steps of his tumble-down shack. And a man was walking along the road uh, in front of his house, and he stopped for a drink of water. And just to pass the time, he decided to have a little bit of a conversation with this farmer. And they asked him, how's your cotton coming along? Ain't got no cotton, said the farmer. Didn't you plant any? Nope. I was afraid of the boll weevils. And so he said, well, how's your corn doing? I don't got no corn, he said. Afraid there wasn't going to be any rain. He said, well, how about your potatoes then? Didn't plant none, he said. Afraid of potato bugs. Really, said the stranger. Well, if you didn't do any of that, what exactly did you plant then? Nothing, he said. I just played it safe. The truth is, you can play it safe. Do nothing. Be nothing, invest nothing, give nothing, be nothing for God. Or you can grow in your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. You can overcome your fears with a peace that passeth all understanding. Don't be a scaredy cat Christian. There's no reason for us to be scared, to be fearful, to live our lives that way. Don't fall for the world's counterfeits. Because all the things that we get (coughs) hoping that this thing will satisfy the longing in our hearts or maybe that will fill this hole that's inside me, none of it will ever last. It never does. The peace of this world will not last. It is only through realizing His great promises and applying them to our situation where we have peace. Are you a scaredy-cat Christian today? Don't, Don't need to be because He's there. He wants to help you. Would you have every head bowed here, every eye closed at this time?